This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. Chancellor has pledged to spend 2% on defence, or has he? I will guarantee a real increase in the defence budget every year and on top of that create a joint security fund of £1.5 billion a year by the end of the Parliament. The IS media machine is in full swing, but how should the West counter it and why simple geography plays such a massive part in global security? So, the government will meet the NATO pledge of spending that all-important 2% of GDP on defence every year this decade. The Chancellor, George Osborne, made the announcement in his summer budget yesterday. Today, this government makes this choice, committing to our armed forces who fight to keep us free, committing to the intelligence agencies who keep us safe, committing to the values we hold dear and defend around the world, and so committing today to meet the NATO pledge to spend 2% of our national income on defence. Just this year, but every year of this decade. He also announced a new joint security fund. In the modern world, the threats we face do not distinguish between different Whitehall budgets, and nor should we. So I will guarantee a real increase in the defence budget every year, and on top of that, create a joint security fund of £1.5 billion a year by the end of the Parliament. I'm joined, as usual, by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, what do you make of this announcement? Well, the first thing that it's... I mean, I'm not talking because it's a good, good thing to have, but it's not new. Prime Minister's already said this. So you, you weren't cheer, cheer, cheering at the television yesterday? Do you know, looking at the House of Commons and the way MPs reacted to something like this, if this were a school, it would be taken into administration. I mean, it really was bad bad scholarship, mindless. Um, no, let's put it in context. Prime Minister has said, the Defence Secretary has said, the Ambassador to Washington has already told um, the State Department and... Uh, the Defence Department, that 2% is is OK. What we're talking about now is slightly adjusting what goes into the defence budget, so intelligence that didn't go into before, or certain types of intelligence, the uh, uh, overseas development part of that, peacekeeping operations part of that, and that doesn't actually matter. It's it uh, Because the 2% really doesn't matter. At the moment, you can spend 1.8%, which is more likely what is being spent at the moment. But it's it, at the moment, for example, the Chief of the uh, General Staff says, that's OK. I'm actually being able to cope with what I need to do with mm. the money that I've got and, at and the And the Chief of Defence Staff has, has welcomed it as well. What about this Joint Security Fund? What is no, it exactly? so much, so much they're Not so much that they're welcoming the 2%. They're saying that we can already cope. And that's the difference. So the 2% is a figure which NATO has to produce because we could produce something. And in fact, I mean, you get something like Greece, which is spending even more than that. So put that into context. What about this Joint Security Fund then? What is it exactly? Joint Security Fund works in, in, in three ways. Uh, one, it looks at the development. And that's particularly in, in, in important. And that's linking, for example, uh, home, home defence, home security with what else we're doing in other in other aspects. So you can actually bring that fund. You can take money which you're already spending, let's say, in the Home Office and the Defence Department and, in fact, the Foreign Office as well, with it, and also through the Home Office, uh, the Security Service. And you can put that in one fund. It's far more manageable if you have that in one fund, but you don't need it to run all three groups. You need it to run... The, I mean, look at the concept we're talking about at the moment. Somewhere in the region of sort of 400... Is what the Home Office say in some like the region of 400 baddies, as they call them. 
Mm. Uh, are working in, in London and to other places. And that's the sort of money you would be looking at. Now, the, the Strategic Defence and Security View is, is on its way. Yesterday's announcement, does it have... What impact does it have on that and the thinking of that? Well, it doesn't have any impact yet because what's going to happen is that the Defence Review has got to be ready by, say, September, October. And what we're seeing also alongside the Defence Review is the Strategic Review... And when the strategic view is balanced with the defence review, that's when you get the true cost, because, in fact, it's, it's going back to what we've been saying for ages, that government's got to say, look, we, this is what we see we want to do in the future. This is, is this the strategic value of our, of our policy, and, and defence has got to see how it can guarantee it. Once you've done that, you can actually say, can you do it with the money you've got, or what do you need to do it, and then how much is that going to cost? So there are two channels. OK, so, so yesterday, was it good news or not for oh, defence? It was, it was good news in as much that, and, and you wouldn't expect it normally in a budget, um, but the, 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 uh, it is Julie, not Julie a budget. Julian Lewis, for example, the chair of the Defence Committee, says the he chair. wants, yeah, the new chair, he, he wants more than 2%, he wants 3 or 4%. That's because he, that was because he was a shadow naval minister. And never, <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, Julian, bless Why his heart. Why shouldn't he? No, Julian, Julian was a, a, a rating in the in the RNVR and has always believed you ought to have three at least three aircraft carriers. Put it in this context. In the autumn there will be the possibility the possibility of further defence cuts this coming autumn, probably about October. The budget is not the time. See, many people would be surprised at that, given the fact that it was all clapping and cheering yesterday. Well, it was, but look what they were clapping and cheering. For example, you know, X number of, uh, of pounds for the pensions for VC holders, etc. The budget is not the place for the defence budget. That will come later, and it will come when they've got an idea of what the defence view is going to cost. Well, the Chancellor's 2% announcement was welcomed by the US Ambassador to Britain, Matthew Bars, and he tweeted that it proved again the indispensability of the UK to global security. Meanwhile, over in Washington, the British Ambassador to the US has been telling the Americans that Britain is taking defence seriously. Peter Westmacott has written an article for the US website Defence One. In it, he promotes the UK's defence policy reaffirming Britain's commitment to NATO. Well, let's talk now to Malcolm Brown from Feature Story News in Washington. Good to speak to you today, Malcolm. It looks like the British ambassador is pleading the Americans to take Britain's defence commitment seriously. Why does he need to do that? Well, because he's faced uh, very publicly expressed concerns for quite some time about what has always been considered for decades here a very dependable ally. Uh, and in that context, uh, there is some reaction to the 2% pledge here, um, uh, relatively junior reaction at the moment, but the Pentagon spokesman, uh, Captain Jeff Davis, has welcomed the announcement coming out of uh, the UK, saying, quote, we strongly value our relationship with the UK military and we appreciate the signal that the UK will remain a leader within NATO. All of this, of course, at a time that a new national military strategy document issued by the Pentagon this week highlights the complex and rapidly changing global security picture here uh, and the fact that the, the conflict with ISIS, etc., and the, the, the global uh, defense insecurity is likely to be a very long-term proposition, uh, meaning that uh, the U.S. is going to rely uh, for the foreseeable future on coalition building and uh, international security cooperation. So they really care here that... Um, the, US, the UK has a, a credible and capable military that can work alongside its uh, American counterpart. Christopher. The Americans this week, aren't they, American? Uh, they're about to take one of the biggest hits they've ever taken, cuts in the Pentagon budget. The army is going to go for a 
going to be go cut forty thousand of... troops by the end of twenty seventeen. Well, that's only that's the beginning. That's only anyway. the beginning, and we look at the overall budget. We're talking in, in terms of something close to a trillion. So, and when the ambassador says, you know, you've got to rely on us, please take our security or, or British uh, defence uh, seriously. The Pentagon in, in, recently has been saying, well, we will when you do. But the problem is that the Americans have got the same problem, albeit on, on a different scale. Malcolm. Yeah, they're having a lot of trouble here. Uh, the, so the, the military is, is operating in an environment in which it doesn't really know for sure what its even short to medium term budget is going to be. So it's operating basically on a year to year basis. And every time it comes up with a cost cutting idea, it comes into the buzzsaw of opposition on Capitol Hill of local interest groups, industry organizations. So they try and kill off a particular aircraft group and anyone who has that stationed in their constituency goes nuts. Uh, and the industry groups start to rally around, form a uh, effective campaign. And so it's very hard for the military to, to make cuts. And uh, every time, for instance, they try also to cut troop numbers in a particular place, uh, that also comes under uh, enormous uh, criticism. So they're operating in this environment with hanging over them the, the dreaded sequestration, uh, which is this essential budget act that could swing later this year, forcing them to cut maybe even more troops. So the current plan that's being talked about this week would bring the U.S. Uh, armed forces down to 450,000. It's possible that come, say, October, they'd need to make even more cuts, bringing it down to 420,000, given that personnel is such a, an enormous cost. that they, they feel that they have comparatively little uh, wiggle room in this, and they say that their long-term planning is also suffering as a result. All right. Uh, Malcolm Brown from Feature Story News in Washington. Thank you. Still to come, Islamic State one year on. What makes its propaganda so potent? And ten maps that tell you everything you need to know about global politics. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Greece is running out of money. It has until Sunday to reach another bailout deal with its international creditors. Greece is a NATO country and has been spending 4% of its GDP on defence. Extraordinary. Uh, Tim Marshall, former diplomatic editor of Sky News, joins us in the studio. Good to speak to you today, Tim. Um, you've written about the situation in Greece recently on your blog. Could these economic issues lead to security issues? Very much so. Uh, primarily that if Greece collapsed as a, as a country, then its ability to deal with the massive migrants that are coming into it and into the islands and then moving on into Europe, that they'll be absolutely nowhere. I mean, they did do a bit of scare tactics a few months ago by saying exactly that. And look, ISIS will be coming with them and they'll be going on into Europe, so you need to help us now. But uh, it was scaremongering, and yet at the same time there is some truth in it. The other thing I think it's worth mentioning is you said 4% of the GDP is, is um, on defence. They have been under a little pressure to try and reduce that. They don't want to. There's two reasons. One, they remain frightened of their NATO ally, Turkey. That's why the budget is so high. But um, it's also because the colonels, they're still there. It's only 1974 since the colonels were no longer in power. I don't believe, despite Socrates and all the rest of them, the roots of Greek democracy are actually that deep. And even within Syriza's own coalition party, there is a party that is basically exists to stand up for the military. So they can't cut the military budget, even though, you know, the, the situation that they're in. Christopher? It, it, 
two or three points. Uh, 4%, 4% of what? That becomes very important. <laughs> yes. And also 4% of, uh, on what they're trying to spend on. Look, they, they, the Greeks have a standing army, for example, of 109,000 people. They've got a reverse force of 280,000 people. They are all paid. Now, you try and count a budget where you're effectively going to take out sort of three, 350,000 peoples or put them in some sort of jeopardy, you, 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 you've got a slight problem. But the most important part of it is they reserve their, their position in NATO as very, very important. Now, you cross over the way into the Balkans, you've got Macedonia. Macedonia wants to join NATO. Who objects to it? Greece, of course. Greece objects to that joining. Now, they say if we come out of NATO, we will not be able to veto the Macedonian uh, uh, membership, uh, uh, apart from a sort of partnership membership of, of NATO. Tim, um, post-war years, Greece was unstable. Um, just explain what happened exactly and whether those big divides could come back. 1944, um, Greece was liberated from the Nazis immediately fell into a civil war between the communists and the government in exile which had, which had come back. I mean, it wasn't communism versus fascism, it was communism versus everybody else. Americans and the British made damn sure that the communists lost in order to push any communist influence out of the Aegean. Uh, Tito, I think, was Yugoslavia was supporting them. They lost. After that, those divisions remained, but were sort of covered up. Then the colonels took power. I think it was 67, 67 till 74. They call it the seven years. And 1974 really isn't that long ago. But, and those massive divisions that were there, you can actually see some of the splits now between uh, the, two, the two sides in, in Greece, Syriza on, on one hand and their supporters and the, their opponents. And what I fear is, is that if society breaks down to, an ex, to a certain extent... The small-scale street violence we've seen could get worse. Mm. And it is only in the 1990s, since there was a series of bombings by a revolutionary left-wing party. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to be too scaremonger about this. You know, we're not going to hopefully see a civil war in Greece. The point I'm making is, if they are not helped in some way, I'm not talking bailout or non-bailout, in some way helped to keep a lid on those those divisions th that you do risk exacerbating them and actually having serious violence on the streets. In the meantime, uh, Christopher, um, Greece and Russia. Well, yeah, and the, the Greeks, to some extent, like the modern Italians, have always uh, refused to give the Russians an absolute fanging when it gets to these in, uh, the European sort of fora. Um, the Russians like the Greeks, to some extent. Uh, they get on well, they visit... So the Greek Prime Minister can go to Moscow right in the middle of a crisis or talk to Putin. And that sort of suggests there is another aspect to this whole thing. Nothing in European politics goes by itself and goes under, the, you know, goes under one conference, for example. There are always these outside elements, and Russia is one of them. But they don't want to get involved. And, and the this, Chinese this, are... But this uh, economic fig leaf they seem to be giving to Greece at the moment. Well, it is a fig leaf. You know, you know, it's a fig leaf. It wouldn't take much of a win to find out what's underneath it either. But the Chinese, for example, they've been asking the Chinese, can you help us out here? And the Chinese want to buy, are trying to buy the whole port area of, of Piraeus. It's rather like buying Southampton. You know, <laughs> it is, it is. Um, and the Chinese, because they've got their own problems at the moment, are backing off the whole thing. But we've got to wait until the weekend, yet another weekend, when we see what this happens. In the meantime, don't forget, it's NATO's watching not just the European banks. 
Mm. Well, stay with us. Uh, more than four million Syrians, a sixth of the population, have fled abroad to escape the conflict in their country, according to the United Nations. The head of the UN's refugee agency, Antonio Guterres, called it the worst humanitarian crisis of our generation, Christopher. It's been coming for a long time, and in fact, two million at first, then four million, and it doesn't it doesn't mean anything in terms of Western Western analysis of what's going on there. Partly because you can't do anything other than try and look after the people who are going into Jordan, going into Iraq, or or or, or, or whatever. But this feeling that it's the worst humanitarian crisis of our generation has to be the sort of thing that you sit back in your policy-making departments in, let's say, in Whitehall, in Washington, etc., and say, why is it that this is another proof that the so-called Western great powers, if that's what they still are, are unable to do anything to solve this problem other than have a refugee uh, policy? Tim Marshall, what's your perspective on this? Uh, It's unstoppable. Uh, And even without the conflict, there would still be the movement from the south to the north. That is going to happen. Why is it unstoppable? Because of the sheer numbers of people and the economic factors the further south you go. Uh, Obviously, it's a hugely exacerbated situation because of Iraq, because of Libya, because of Syria. Massively exacerbated. But it would happen anyway. The south is moving north. So let's deal with that and let's manage that. Uh, How? but, But let's not... There's no stopping it. And you start at the Horn of Africa. Yes. Somalia, uh, Yemen, and all the instability that bleeds. Fundamentally, you you must... This is why the Conservatives have not cut the um, international aid budget, because I think they do get that you have to try to stabilise those countries. The more stable they are, the better off economically they are, the fewer people are going to chance dying to come up here. So I think that's one way. Another way is managed immigration. Another way is not to exacerbate wars. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to get into the whole, you know, should they have, shouldn't they, in, the, in, in mm. what happened in, in the noughties. But um, think very, very carefully before you act. Uh, don't walk away as, uh, I mean, uh, David Cameron, I was there, I think it was Benghazi, it might have been Tripoli, when he said, we will stand by you shoulder to shoulder. Mm -hmm. And I don't see them anymore standing shoulder to shoulder. So, you know, there's a whole raft of stuff they've got to do. Look, I don't have the answers. I'm just saying there needs to be sensible policies, but there needs to be the acceptance. Mm -hmm. You're not going to stop the move from south to north. You can only mitigate it. It's just over a year since Islamic extremists announced they had set up a caliphate called Islamic State. In that time, they appear to have become so powerful. It's been described by our own Prime Minister as an existential threat. A little earlier, I spoke to Charlie Winter, who's from the Quilliam Foundation, the counter-extremist think tank. He spent the last year studying the IS media machine. I asked him why the IS propaganda is so potent. Well, it's first important to recognise that when we're dealing with Islamic State propaganda, we're not just dealing with one machine, we're dealing with many different machines that are all cranking themselves together, but cranking out and producing many different narratives that are all aimed at different target audiences. In some, they all say a very concise message, but in separation of each other as well, they're they're very convincing to different target audiences, and I think that's one of the key things that, that has caused... Uh, the counter-narrative efforts to, to fail so far. Can you give me an example of a target audience and how it is targeted? Of course. So if we take the use of Hadood punishments in Syria, so these are so-called crimes against God, so it could be theft, 
uh, murder, rape, adultery, that sort of thing. Islamic State very regularly circulates photo reports or videos showing uh, individuals having their hands cut off or being stoned or thrown from buildings or being beheaded um, in a, a crowd, invariably in a crowd. Uh, now, to us in the West, it's very quickly understood as Islamic State is very brutal. It's, it's committing these abhorrent acts and, and it's irrational because of the, the, the sheer level of brutality. But to someone within the region, to, to a Syrian Muslim, who is Syrian Sunni Muslim, who has been living uh, in the shadow of, of Bashar al-Assad and the war that he's been waging against his country for the last four years, um, who has been living in a, a state of lawlessness and exposed to the worst forms of warlordism and, and criminality, what Islamic State is saying here is that if you go by our line, if you follow what, what we say and, and our laws, then you'll be safe. You'll be part of a crowd. You'll be uh, able to enjoy a measure of stability and security. Uh, and those who, who go against you, who are criminals and, and affect you uh, nefariously, who, who damage your possessions, steal your possessions, uh, they will be dealt with with uh, a, a great deal of, of ruthlessness. And there is no question that they'll be de dealt with. So, so what we're getting here is a split narrative. We're, we're seeing, on the one hand, uh, awful levels of brutality, but on the other hand, uh, assertions of, of stability and security. And how do you think that the West and the enemies of so-called Islamic State should counter this? Well, I think that one good start would be to take a leaf out of Islamic State's book and actually recognize that we need to be thinking about our narrative, not just the counter-narrative, but our narrative, and recognize that we are dealing with many different target audiences. So we can't just aim our propaganda at, at uh, sorry, uh, well, I suppose it is our propaganda, our counter-propaganda. We can't just aim that at individuals who are on the cusp of joining the group. We need to be thinking about everyone. So the people in Syria who are uh, living in, in the, the state of lawlessness and, and war that they, they have been for so long, uh, people in Iraq, people around the world who are finding the, the, the promise of empowerment and, and uh, a, a, a very uh, desirable future uh, in this utopia, who find that attractive? We need to be sending a message out to, to many different people. Saying and it what? It can't be the same message. Saying what? Well, there's no one thing, and this this again is is something that I think has has perhaps derailed policymakers so far. The fact that there's been this uh, this search for the kind of golden fleece narrative that that will uh, decimate Islamic states message in, in one fell swoop. It, it's not going to happen like that. There needs to be uh, a, a lot of different things that are being said. So things that cut through the momentum narrative that Islamic State has, that it's constantly succeeding. Things that cut through the idea that it's a land of plenty. Things that cut through the idea that Islamic State is, is run by very uh, strict uh, individuals who have always been very good Muslims. I mean, we're dealing with lots of uh, former uh, Saddam Hussein regime uh, individuals, people from the intelligence corps. I mean, that's, that's a, a really fruitful pot from which we can be taking out narratives, but, but we're not. Um, we're talking about it, but we're not talking about it enough.
That was Charlie Winter, Quillian's senior researcher on transnational jihadism, speaking to me earlier. Uh, Christopher, in spite of the, the bombings claimed by the Taliban in Kabul, the Afghan government has met for talks with the Taliban for the first time. What can you tell us? Um, they've met for the first time. This is not a meeting which you expect to sort of have a press conference at the end of it and say, no, we've got a deal here. It's nothing. It's, it's the, it, it, the significance is, is, the, is the meeting. What is particularly good, that Taliban is there, and one of the reasons they're there follows on from what we've just been talking about, um, IS is now very, very powerful against Taliban in Afghanistan. And parts of Taliban are actually having to retreat. That's a very good time to get into conference or discussions with the Afghanistan government, the Afghan government, which after all, they've always said that if you want to get a deal, you would have a deal with Pakistan, Taliban and the government itself. Now, how much does the physical geography of a country impact on its place on the world stage? Well, according to a new book, rivers, mountains, deserts and seas all matter when it comes to world power and security. Tim Marshall is still with us and is the author of the book, which is called Prisoners of Geography. So, Tim, uh, your book has ten maps which you say tell you everything you need to know about world politics. The first map is Russia. How does the landscape there help or hinder its foreign policy ambitions? It hinders it, usually. In front of Russia is the flatland, which is called Ukraine, and then it goes on into the North European plain, which is flat, all the way to France. And across that flatland in the past half, uh, half a millennia, they keep getting invaded. Occasionally they've gone the other way as well, but they keep getting invaded. Swedes, Poles, Germans, twice, uh, the British... All come, all come that way. So you're, you will seek to dominate that flatland yourself. You're not just going to sit back and not seek to dominate it. And that is part of the rationale for, for why the meddling in Ukraine happens. Secondly, if your ports freeze, as they do, and your only partial warm water port is in Sebastopol in the Crimea, which you've got on lease from a Ukraine that's friendly with you, well, if that Ukraine flips into the Western or NATO sphere, you don't have a choice. You invade Crimea and you annex it. Why particularly the geography? Why have you focused on that? Because it's the overlooked determining factor in history and current affairs. I mean, look, there are the great men and women of history that push history. There are the ideas, there's the technology. And they all get mentioned and they're all extremely valid. But the one that's overlooked, I think, more uh, than any is geography. A, a brief current, very current example... If you know that the Alawites of Syria, of which President Bashar Assad is one, came from the hills above the Mediterranean plain uh, on the uh, coast of Syria, that's something worth knowing in itself. When you look at the pattern of the recent fighting, you will notice they are making absolutely sure they keep the route from Damascus up to Homs clear. Sharp left turn takes you towards the coast and up towards those hills. They are making absolutely certain they keep the escape route free in case they ever have to return back to their their future, back up into the, to those same hills. And, and that, that, that's the thing that is often overlooked. Christopher, how much do soldiers know about geography and, and how much it might affect their operations before they're deployed somewhere? Well, it, it depends which soldiers you're talking about. Um, well, let's talk about the top. Well, well at the top, uh, uh, the I think quite well. The people who make the strategic well, decisions. Let's take, let, let, let's take what Tim was talking about with, with, with the Soviet Union, as it was, uh, when... The, the NATO in general, but each individual country had to actually look at NATO, uh, look at the Soviet Union. They were looking at something which stretch, stretches across all those time zones for a start, with some like 110, 111 different nationalities there, 
with terrain which in one area is under permafrost. They were looking at, 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 a, at a navy, a Russian navy or Soviet navy that had to be split into four mm. with the uh, Vladivostok as the, as the Tiki Flot, which was a main submarine, but the Northern Fleet, because it's different terrain and a different purpose it had. And so the, I think they take a lot, of, a, a lot of interest. Now, the other side of it is this, the more immediate part when there was, let's say, the Cold War and the 16 Shock Army at Magdeburg was going to be at the Channel Ports in four, four days or so, they said. They had to look at the North German Plain, and they had to look at the fact there were a lot of waterways there, mm. and the fact that the, therefore the, the Russians or the Soviet Union had developed things like the P-76 tank, which could go in the water and up the mm. other side. That was part of looking at the, the, the yeah. sort of the, the market garden side of defence. So they studied it quite a lot. So Tim, of all these maps for everything you need to know, which is the one that struck you the most, and which one do you think is the most insightful for understanding the greatest threat to global security? South China Sea, probably. Uh, I, I was probably. I, no, I was going to say Russia. <laughs> Hedge your bets. No, no, I was going to say Russia until you put in the bit about the, the most global threat, because yes. the, the Russia is the clearest example. Um, briefly, between the Baltic Sea and the Carpathian Mountains, is a, it's 300 miles of flatland. It's called Poland. It's the narrowest point of the North European plain, and it is why the battles have happened. You know, it's very unfortunate for Poland that that's where they're situated. But so the South China Sea, um, leading up into the Straits of Malacca, uh, where the, a lot of the oil, world's oil comes through. Mm. Um, who controls that area? Well, the Chinese are destined to. It's their backyard. But the Americans are not yet ready to give up on that. And as, Amer as China builds a blue water navy and pushes out into the Pacific, it will bump up against the Americans. How that relationship is managed is probably the biggest challenge of the century. Tim, thank you very much. And your book, Prisoners of Geography, 10 Maps That Tell You Everything You Need to Know About Global Politics, is out today. Uh, Christopher, just before we go, what should we look out for next week? Well, the first thing we could look out for is whether the Iranian and the five people get a deal on, on the future of, uh, of, of nuclear missiles. And don't forget nuclear missiles as well as nuclear warheads and the nuclear development program in Iran. And if they don't get it quickly... Uh, the American Congress won't be able to ratify it. And that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. We'll be back at the same time next week. Bye-bye for now. News. News. Sports. Sports. And music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.